News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in Brooklyn, here with Professor Christina Greer and executive producer Alex Brooklyn, both in Manhattan. We've got a packed show this week with Ruvane Blau of The City, talking about Rikers Island, what's going wrong there, Assemblyman Ron Kim, coming to us from the extraordinary special session taking place now in Albany, and David Brand of City Limits, talking about the uh, extension of the eviction moratorium being worked out in that session. Let's jump right in. So we're here uh, for the first time overdue with Ruvan Blau, senior reporter for the city. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks. Ruvan, you've done a ton of reporting about Rikers over the uh, years uh, of the city and of the Daily News before that and of the chief leader before that. Um, and things seem to be going hideously there at the moment judging from recent reports about these endless triple shifts, no water inside, atrocious heat, conditions that are so bad that, that the inmates actually feel sorry for, the, uh, uh, for the, the officers who are there. There have been a whole number of deaths inside recently. And this is all happening right as the feds, sort of incidentally, are, are shutting down the uh, MCC in downtown Manhattan. And when we're all waiting to see if another shoe is going to drop with the uh, virus inside, uh, it, ventilation conditions are a whole other issue. I'm hoping you can just give our listeners some sense of what things are like inside right now, why conditions seem to have deteriorated to this point, and what the city is or could be uh, doing about all this as the uh, present mayor winds down and a new one's coming in. And it looks like the plan to replace Rikers is at the very least the way they've stopped giving out updates for quite a while, which used to come pretty frequently. Yeah, I mean, there's just a lot going on. I, I kind of joke uh, if you want to see, you know, kind of if there's changes, on, you know, afoot at Rikers, check out what the union's up to and how upset they are. Um, you know, I, I think it starts really with the new commissioner, uh, Vinny Giraldi, who you know was recently appointed a few months ago. And, you know, he's somebody for the first time, I'd say, you know, since I've covered this for about 20 years, who's coming in, um, I shouldn't say the first time, but like really more of recent, let me 10, 15 years, who's got a lot of ideas and a lot of stuff to sort of like kind of no brainer ideas of like increasing programming and, you know, trying to get staff back to work, um, just sort of really, really kind of basic ideas. Um, but it's frustrating because there's just a lot of terrible things happening now. And it seems like really what's happening is a result uh, largely of the pandemic's response, right? right. Rikers was closed, literally just kind of its own. It's amazingly isolated under normal circumstances. And it was just even more so during the pandemic where all visits were shut down, all programs were shut down. I mean, there, there was a period during the pandemic, which is just mind boggling to me, where the city was sending people into Rikers who, you know, for drug issues and they're getting zero programming. I mean, it's at, you know, at best there's programming there, you know, limited programming. There is admittedly zero kind of drug rehabilitation programming at all there going on during the pandemic. Um, so some of that stuff's starting, starting to reopen, but the number one challenge that they're facing right now is staffing. Um, you know, and even day there's over a thousand officers who are not coming to work. Um, 
one of the things that's really missing in some of these media reports about the issue, and which we've written about as well, the city um, officers, correction officers have something called unlimited sick leave, which means that, you know, there's not necessarily a timeline where they have to come back as long as they're sort of medically approved. Uh, they can stay out for as long as necessary. And the union says, hey, look, that's necessary because they can get injured on the job and they really need the leeway for, uh, you know, when there are those injuries to deal with, to kind of recuperate properly. Um, one of the things that Vinny did was he said, look, you have to uh, get signed off by a, a doctor, a department doctor at Mine Sinai. So firstly of all, that, made, that meant that like officers from all the five boroughs have to schlep out there and get checked up. And second of all, I mean, let's be honest, any department doctor is going to be a little tougher about, you know, keeping someone out than some random, you know, family practice doctor. So they're, they're upset, you know, they're really upset about that. Um, they feel that was really unfair. And, and um, you know, the union shortly after that decision was made or that, that kind of order was put out publicly. They had this big rally, um, you know, kind of really frustrated by that. I mean, Vinny's also talked privately about moving staff out of sort of administrative roles you know, over time, there's been this issue where like wardens, deputy wardens have receptionists, have like kind of aides and that are not working kind of directly in the jails. And these are really kind of uh, sought after jobs. But over time, that that number of jobs where there's like kind of civilians, officers acting as sort of civilians in, you know, in the headquarters and things like that is, has gone up. And that's also one of the issues that, you know, Vinny's kind of addressed. And, and he, you know, he's admitted his look, you know, it stinks. You're going to go from like working in Boulevard doing paperwork to getting thrust into, you know, back into a jail where there's, you know, inmates who are unhappy, you know, it's not ideal, but uh, he said, look, you know, we got the staff, we got to do it. And overall the staffing is a big issue, right? Like the union says, like, we need more people. They're hiring 400 officers at a time of, you know, kind of this defund the police talk, our conversation, or just kind of, or even just sort of looking at what the staffing should be. And the federal monitor, I think was really the most interesting part of this was saying, look, you don't need more officers. You just have to use them better. And, you know, that's kind of the challenge kind of going forward. Uh, you know, I think more recently there's the suicides issues as well. There's been five in the last few months today, just today, the city board of correction, which has oversight of the city jail system, put out a statement, which is really unique for them. I, I've actually never seen them do this, like outside of their sort of regular, you know, meetings and, and kind of technical, um, reports. They said, look, somebody has got to do something here. This is a problem. You know, this is really, really, really scary and life-threatening and, uh, there's a real issue. Um, you know, we're working on a story. I'm working on a story with uh, George Joseph at WNYC about intake and the, and the issues of intake. Like that's where um, some of these have happened. You know, that's been an ongoing issue for a long, long time. Um, it's it's one of those misnomers. Like people think, well, you know, intake is like an area where you get, you know, you kind of go through and your paperwork goes through, and then you get sent to a regular facility. The jail, right? One of the issues with Rikers Island is is that intake is used as a punishment. Um, you know, if somebody's behaving badly, or there's mental illness, or they're, you know, somebody's frustrating the officers. There's a lot of attention now on on solitary. So instead of solitary, um, or you know, as part of kind of the solitary punishment, they'll throw them in intake and sometimes leave them there for several days. I talked to an inmate last week who was in was processed. He had just come into the system and spent, I think it was two days in a shower like area with you know, in, with ten other people. He said about ten other people sleeping on a shower floor, and he said that they didn't they skipped lunch. And the only way they got dinner was because another officer, a cop came by and was like putting someone in the, in the, in the pan and they were like kind of begging him for food. So they got food, but I mean, it's really, really not ideal and, and, you know, violates, you know, a ton of regulations that are in place. And you wrote about a month ago, uh, about 
you know, several deaths that weren't suicides, uh, three parole violators, actually, that sort of d- that died last spring because they didn't have appropriate medical care after saying that they weren't feeling well. Uh, so what about, uh, uh, I mean, other than suicide, what about accidental death? Are those numbers up as well? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to tell. It seems like they are, um, you know, it's hard to tell kind of until you get, kind of get the year-to-year data. Um, there definitely are cases. I mean, medical care in Rikers Island has always been an issue. Um, you know, I was telling Harry, we were doing a book, uh, an oral history of Rikers Island, and we have a chapter uh, with Graham Raymond, a, a former colleague of mine at the Daily News. Um, and, you know, we got a chance to talk to all these different medical providers. And one of the things that really came out was just like, just the entire system is so messed up. Um, the way it works, I don't know if most people know this, the way it works is if you're in a facility or housing facility, you put your name on a list, you literally handwrite it on the list. So number one, the officer could say, oh, I didn't see it or I didn't re- couldn't read it. Um, and then there's sick call like once a day that's supposed to happen. So the officer can say, hey, you know, sick call, I'm going to take whoever's on this list to the, to the clinic. What happens frequently is the officer doesn't, either they don't have staff, the officer doesn't want to move people around. So they'll come into an area and they'll just kind of whisper like sick call, you know, where no one hears it. So they'll miss it that way where they'll just say, Hey, I didn't see you on the list. Um, so I just over and over and over again, you hear these stories where people are put on the list or say, Hey, I put my name on the list. I didn't get to see a doctor for like, you know, several days, if not longer. Um, the system itself is just fundamentally flawed. You know, I asked the Blasio about this the other, a couple of weeks, you know, maybe a couple of months ago about like how they still use these sort of hand paper, right? Like, and they do this also for like listing incidents of violence that are, don't necessarily register like kind of high level incident, like violence or serious violence. They have something called a logbook, which is, is for years has been manipulated because it's, it's just a, literally a book. It's not put in anything. It's just, it's kind of mind boggling. Um, and he's like, well, I didn't know, you know, that's, that sounds crazy to me. Well, you know, I'll look into it. Um, but we're talking about, you know, we're in the year 2021 and people, this is done in a way because this is how the jail operates, right? You talk about Rikers Island and shutting down Rikers Island. And there's a, there was an op-ed recently about saying like, it's not about shutting down Rikers Island. It's about the management. Um, I get that. I understand that management is an issue and then changing that culture is a, is a huge conversation to be had. Um, but that doesn't change the, these kind of things where like, you know, it's just on paper, you know, or the, how people are seen or not seen. Um, but it also, mean, I guess the ori- yeah, oh. I'm sorry. Oh, I said, I guess the original impetus was because it's so isolated and because the visitation, I mean, the visitation was curbed almost as a punitive response after like the 2014 justice report came out saying that most of the drugs that came, not most, 50% of the drugs that came in were being brought in by COs and kind of all of a sudden, a couple months after that happens, visitation is, uh, is curbed considerably um and the you know this has been sort of an ongoing issue with rikers all the way back then but back then it was more populated than it is now it almost feels like it's like the last you know the last population hanging around what is soon to become some like very strange abandoned island yeah. I mean, you, you bring up a good point about the visitation and the contraband. This is one of those arguments that has been made for years, right? Like I've heard everybody say, it's the, it's the, it's the uh, uh, visits who bring in the contraband. Well, guess what? We had this fantastic kind of experiment that just happened over COVID. No more visits, right? Nobody was coming in. And guess what? There's still contraband floating around that place right. like nobody's business. So surprise, surprise, it isn't just the visitors bringing it in. I had the opportunity to interview Mary Buser, who um, sure, great book. wrote a book. Yeah, she wrote a, a great book. She accidentally ended up as like acting head of the Bing, which is like a men's solitary confinement 
building um and what she recounted to me and what she recounts in the book lockdown on rikers is just like the ways in which you start thinking about the mentally ill uh, and and people threatening suicide and now are they doing this because they've really hit a breaking point or are they doing this just to get out of solitary and making those kind of calls which seem absurd because if you've been pushed to that point trying to get out of solitary aren't you haven't you then become eligible for <laughs> leaving solitary because you've uh, you're you're having an episode so um when she spoke about how this this mix up in the administrators in our life right like how she had become someone that you know wasn't able to tell good right from wrong essentially um especially she worked in the era when you bring up the medical stuff uh she worked in the era where the the medical provider for Rikers was also under investigation for the huge amounts of rapes and like trading meds for sex scandals um and that's all 2015 I don't even know if they have the same medical provider anymore yeah, they have a, I mean, it, she was, she was a little bit earlier than that, actually. Um, now, I think she was under, when it was Horizon, the privately held kind of right. for-profit group. It's been taken over since, that was one of the great things that actually, I think it under de Blasio changed um, right away. It was a correction health services under a health and hospitals corporation. Um, so that actually has been a, you know, huge improvement and there's been a lot more um, attention paid. So these, these, you know, these deaths and these medical issues aren't necessarily pointed to like, oh, somebody's trying to like kind of corner cut with funding or staffing. A lot of it's just sort of like inherently how just sort of terrible, like you said, and you know, that people are in these sort of bad situations or not being kind of screened properly or they're not being taken to their medical appointments in the right ways. They're missing. A, we just had a story, um, you know, how there's like the missed medical appointments is through the roof. That's constantly been an issue. And again, it just comes literally down to like, Hey, you put your name on a sheet, the officer's not calling you or the officer's just on its own stuff deciding you, you look fine. You don't need to go to medical, you know, kind of playing doctor. Um, so there's all these sort of factors. I mean, one of the big issues also is with medical was, um, back in the day, and this is something I learned kind of doing research for this book, but one of the things was there used to be a lot more freedom. Like often inmates or detainees, like we used to be able to walk around a lot more freely kind of in the facility. They put their name on the list and they'd walk over to the clinic themselves. Over a year, over time, there'd been more security issues and kind of more layers of rules. So they need an, an officer in, uh, escort. Um, so the argument could be, hey, look, it's a safer situation. They're escorted by an officer. But at the same time, the officer doesn't show up or the officer isn't available. This is what happens. So, Ruben... I mean, the population is way down from a few years ago. It's up a bunch from last year when the city was trying to get everyone out they could uh, because of the virus. It, it's um, somewhere over 5,000 now. 4,000 is what we'd be able to hold under these new jails that, that are supposed to eventually replace Rikers. The staff has not gone down at all. So ratio-wise, it seems like that should work. But, you know, I'm reading... A few weeks ago, you mentioned the logbooks, you know, an inmate getting a hold of one of the logbooks and filling it out. No officer on post, no fan on post. This is outrageous. Something needs to be done. What's, go what's gone so wrong there? And does closing Rikers maybe fix some of this? I mean, moving to less isolated locations? Like, like is some of this magically emanating from the uh, structures there and like the landfill it's built on. Most of the island is, you know, an old garbage dump that used to be rat infested. Uh, are the problems particular to this place and how isolated it's been? Um, do they have something to do with how, with, with how jails are working now? Like, like I, I find this hard to think about. It, it just, it seems so distinctly troubled when de Blasio talks about this, he gets very airy. He sort of points to the uh, culture 
at the Department of Corrections, which, of course, he, he oversees, and says we can't do anything until that gets fixed. Why has this been so difficult to improve so that even as the population has gone down, the problems seem to get worse and worse and, and more intense? Or is this just a question of more reporting on it? Yeah, it's that's a, a lot to unpack there. Um, I, I want to start with one with one part and the shutdown records. And I, I, I've evolved on this as well. I mean, on a personal level. Um, you know, I, I used to think the same thing. I, I think that the shutdown records conversation takes away from the conversation about like, wait, you have to change a culture. Like if you don't have that conversation, even start talking about it, you're gonna have problems in the new facilities as well. I agree with that. I think that that's a very important part of this. It you know needs to change. But I will add, it is mind boggling to me that anyone at this point thinks that like shutting down Rikers is not like the solution or an, at least a solution that will actually improve situ the situation. What situation am I talking about? There's something called bullpen therapy, which has been going on for decades, which is it's simple. It's, it takes hours and hours and hours to get people to their court hearings. To, and it, they wake them up at four, three in the morning, drag them out to court, sit them in a cell, get them a salami sandwich. Actually, recently salami was out, I think. So they only had tuna um, or vice versa, one of the things. So they literally had like one choice of sandwich. Like I think it was cheese sandwiches for like weeks. And you sit in a cell, pack with people. It's a disgusting, majorly, incredibly uncomfortable situation. Rinse, repeat over and over and over and over again. And usually for like minor court hearings. And frankly, it's, many times it's just like adjudicated or like the judge isn't there or somebody's not there and they can't actually have the hearing. Um, they sweat you out. And that is done on purpose, you know, by the system, by the prosecutors. Um, it's a system that's sort of set up in this way. And it's inhumane. I mean, it's absolutely inhumane. And I, and I talked to Michael Jacobson, who was correction commissioner uh, under the Giuliani administration. And he's like, you know, I was trying to work on this when I was commissioner. And let me tell you, like, I'm not happy about it. Like, it just, it's a problem. And as much as I tried, as much as I tried, there was nothing, I, I couldn't make a dent in that, in that issue. Um, and I think the only thing you can do is literally the physical change of getting them closer to a, to a jail. So that eliminates that. And it, for that alone, I mean, I understand the cost is, is astronomical at the time where, you know, money is going to be tight for the for the government, you know. But and we have that with the tombs, right? You know, you had a prison that, that like backed up directly into the courthouse, in effect, a jail, rather. And then th that, that, that eventually closed and, and, and Rikers was supposed to be part of the answer. Like, like could, that, could that be redone in, in a, a better, more competent way that maybe is worth some of that cost? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, you know, my, my uh, Graham, who did some research on just sort of the history of Rikers, and it's fascinating. But there's a, there's this, you know, there's people who have said at the start when Rikers started, it was like, this is the reform, right? This is terrible where we had people before, and this is going to be state of the art, and we're never going to have these problems again. We're going to put people on Rikers Island, and it's going to be amazing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, you know, the No New Jails people have, have cited that, that history. Um, you know, so I look, there's, I don't have, I don't profess to have the answers or to say, look, you know, this is the panacea, but I do think that the only way to kind of, to end this kind of bullpen therapy, uh, concept is, is to get them closer to the jails. Everything else is, you know, that doesn't mean that everything else is off the table as far as other changes that need to be done, but that, you know, just moving them off, you can, that conversation cannot start about whether or not it's worth closing down Rikers or not. It cannot start unless you have the conversation about bulb and therapy. And it's, and it's really left out, frankly, when, when these you know, articles are written about, hey, maybe we should you know, pump the brakes here. Um, you know, there's an interesting concern in moving forward about you know, where, Eric, where does Eric Adams stand on this? As bar president, his, his, um, his representative voted in favor of it uh, with some conditions, um, you know, with some you know, kind of caveats. I've talked to Judge Littman, who's been a you know big big proponent of, of shutdown records, and he said like I've got all faith in the world that that Eric's going to move forward. There's a really interesting part of this though. Um, Eric Adams is is 
is very close with uh, you know Peta Bishop, the lobbying firm, and uh, they have uh, you know very close ties with uh, correction officers, Benevolent Association, COLA. And so, you know, it's a real, it's a real question mark. And I've talked to other people about, it. I've talked to Ms. Glazer about it recently. And, and she said, look, you know, I'm worried about it. You know, it's unclear what could happen here. I can add one thing on the, like, if I can add just one thing, I'm going to turn for a second, like the legacy, you know, like Harry was asking, like, why is this sort of happening now? Like, you know, is it more coverage? Is it this, is that? I think, I think it's hard to look at de Blasio's legacy on, on Rikers Island, right? Um, he comes in and he says, you know, this is terrible. I didn't know how bad it was, right? I inherited this terrible mess from uh, Bloomberg, who really, you know, clearly kind of made a lot of cuts under Dora Shurer's administration. And there's all these stories of, you know, terrible. Actually, interestingly, uh, really sad, tragically, is the inmate Bradley Ballard, who passed away, he baked it, literally baked to death in a cell, was under de Blasio, was when he first took office. Um, and he said, look, we're going to change this. And I've actually talked to people who said, I actually think the mayor spent too much time focusing on this, right? Like, it's not an issue that people care about, and it's not something you can change. Um, so he comes in and he says, I'm going to appoint this guy he comes in from Maine Pont union says, this guy's in over his head. He doesn't know what he's doing. Pont says, look, I can, I'm going to number one, I'm going to, you know, restrict solitary. And he does. And to his credit, that actually starts getting emotion, you know, flips out the union violence goes up, but then he comes up with a 12 point plan. I'm going to reduce violence. Not one of those points worked. Um, and when he leaves, you know, after a lot of turmoil, as most correction commissioners end up going, Cynthia Brand gets appointed. And again, Cynthia Brand you know, if you can tell me one issue that she focused in on and made a priority, I, I'd be, you know, I'd love to hear it because she's there and I've covered her administration, never talked to her, never got a press release from them saying, hey, we're doing this, we're doing that, other than, you know, kind of the changes in solitary, which these slow rolled and, and really kind of took their time kind of, you know, putting the squeeze on the Board of Correction to limit. And, and then, you know, as he's leaving, as he's leaving office, you know, surprise, surprise, he comes in and appoints Vinny Chiraldi, who was in the running you know, before Pont was, 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 uh, was promoted, um, was, you know, named and everybody, you know, everybody says, look, this is the guy, you know, he's the guy with the ideas. He's the guy who's going to really kind of, you know, work to change things for the better. He's somebody who's really passionate about this, but he's the guy with seven months, you know, and, and potentially counting depending on what Eric Adams does. So, you know, it's, it's, it's good to know that, you know, that the Blasio seemed, you know, really did focus in on this, you know, but clearly was okay with putting people in charge who really didn't want to rock the boat at all in any way. So looking for the last question, looking forward, we have a lot more protections for parolees now, like people aren't just getting, well, hopefully people aren't just going to be getting thrown back in for not showing up to like one uh, parole officer appointment. Um, and, you know, uh, Alan Bragg, we had on the show, if he is elected to Manhattan DA promises, you know, a more robust diversion court for the mentally ill, which uh, has a huge population on on Rikers, and there's more substance abuse programming throughout the whole city. So with all of those things looking forward, and these are things we haven't really had before, um, how do you see that affecting the population of uh, Rikers Island, like, do we have some hope on the horizon that it might not be so dismal for uh, the city's most vulnerable or some of the city's most vulnerable? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, I think it, you know, like it takes time to make some of these changes. Um, you know, I think, you know, Vinny Shiraldi, the commissioner has talked about getting officers back and he's, I think he's this month on a kind of doctorate move has, has gotten some people back on the job. Um, I think that's number one, you know, he's also like literally like also done there's doors that weren't working. So he had got city hall to put some money into like fixing these doors. They were like supposedly like incredibly unique sort of sizing. And it took a lot of work and money to kind of put them back. Um, so he's working on that as well. Uh, you know, he's talked about, you know, increasing programming, you're right. And, you know, in Manhattan DA changing some of that, um, you know, kind of moving people away. 
um, you know, it was a huge, huge first step. I mean, I think there's still incredible lack of resources for people who commit crimes and who are clearly mentally ill. Like it, it, there's a real kind of confusion about where they go and, you know, where's what's best for them. But the answer is clearly not Rikers Island or any of the city jails. Right. The problem is, is that the alternatives are limited and the DA's willingness to sort of find alternatives is willing to, um, there's a group, I don't know if you're familiar, like, like the Greenberger Center, like, um, it's fascinating. Like they, they had a relative who, who was, uh, you know, convicted of an arson, had su- suffered mental illness and they actually got the DA to say, Hey, look, yeah, we agree. You know, we don't want to put him in jail. Like it's going to, it's just going to make it worse, but where do you put them? Like there's no place. So they actually are now starting their own. Um, they've, you know, they've created their own center for, for, for people with, you know, sort of similar issues, but guess what? It's only, I think it's, it's small. Like, you know, it's 10, 20 people max. I don't think it's, I mean, know, I mean, this is a huge, it's a huge issue in the city right now. I mean, Pataki's Burger Commission pretty much like consolidated us out of an appropriate amount of psychiatric beds in this entire state, but that's another episode for another time. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Sorry. I can go on. I'm sorry. I'm very passionate about this. Yeah. No, I think we could all all probably go on for a couple more episodes. Ruvain, will you please come back on? And, and go on as things unfold over these, these last months of the de Blasio administration uh, and with new leadership uh, at Corrections and then, and then under Adams. We're going to see where all this goes. I would love to. Thank you. And the book you're working on, can you uh, pl- plug that for us and our listeners? I would love to. Yeah, we're still working on the title. I think so far, like the working title is Just Another Day in Rikers Island. It's an oral history um, by Graham Raymond, who's amazing and has been covering this for longer than I have and knows some you know, amazing people. Um, who've shared some incredible stories and myself. It's an oral history. We've talked to you know, over 120 people, including just officers, detainees, medical professionals, commissioners, chefs, you name it, they're in there. And uh, they have some incredible, incredible stories. I can't wait till it comes out. I can't yeah. wait to read that. I- I'm so old. I remember when Graham was at the Village Voice and um, guards at Rikers were making inmates fight, beat each other up, and were gambling on this for- The program, yeah. Yeah. A little bit for gambling, but mostly for sport. And because it was the village voice, no one gave a shit. Because it was Rikers, no one gave a shit. It was just this natural tabloid story that that, that, that he was reporting on. The details were extraordinary. And and simply no 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 one no one cared or was invested in it who had any power. It was remarkable. Yeah, I mean you talk about like no one giving a shit. Like I I you know, when when Vinny came on, I said, look, you know, look. I'd love to take our staff. Like, let's let's take our staff to do a tour of Rikers, right? Like the people who, you know, because I sometimes even have a, not always frequently, but sometimes it's hard to kind of convince, you know, people that like, hey, this is a story, um, you know, but if you see it up close, I think you have a much more kind of different reaction. If you talk to the people, you have a different reaction. Uh, I think you know, a so, huge, yeah. Oh, sorry. I, ju- I just think it was a huge, it was a huge eye opener for a lot of people when Cecily, Cecily McMillan after Occupy Wall Street got into Rikers. So they've got this young white girl who has a platform and wrote about some of the atrocities she saw at Rosie Singer. And um, all of a sudden that paired with the justice report 2014 to 2016 was kind of like a huge um, Rikers in the news moment. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think historically also, it's sadly, really sadly, is that when it really does kind of ga- grab the attention of the public is when there's a death, you know, like, or death that sort of really just like kind of shocks the conscious of the people. Like Lane Polanco was one of those, um, you know, I think that really, really did trigger or spur the solitary changes to go kind of even further. Um, you know, Cleve Browder, I, there's kind of a list that there's, there was one in the 80s, um, you know, who's, who was, uh, 
you know, also really there was a huge report, a ton of stories at the time. Um, there's just, you know, that seems to really, like you said, or any kind of incident that kind of really out of the norm, which is really not out of the norm, right? It's Rikers Island. This is not out of the norm. This is, this is, this is the norm. Ruven, thank you so much. Uh, please come back. And uh, we really appreciate uh, all the work you're doing and you're taking the time. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Here's Assemblyman Ron Kim joining us from Albany. Thank you so much for, for taking the time on a uh, extraordinary day. Well, thank you for having me on. Good to be back. Hey, appreciate it. Um, so I know this is ongoing, but can you fill listeners in on why the legislature is, is meeting now and what you'd like to see out of this, uh, out of this session, the first with Governor Kathy Hochul? Well, the first things first, today is a special session that was called by Governor Kathy Hochul, which means the, by law, the governor gets to set the agenda. So even though we have a number of things we want to get to, like impeaching Andrew Cuomo, we can't propose that the Kathy Hochul gets to set the proposal. Um, today we're meeting because, again, we are, we are being reactionary. Um, many of my colleagues have been warning that we, this moment was going to come, which is the ex- expiration of the eviction moratorium, uh, which was on August 31st, um, which was, I believe, yesterday. Um, so we are here to expand, extend the eviction moratorium, uh, as well as uh, fix some of the gaps uh, in the small businesses, the uh, foreclosure uh, process, uh, as well as make it easier for people to gain access to the 2.3, uh, $2.4 billion of housing tenant uh, fund that we've secured, of which we've only uh, doled out about $230 million so far. So there's a huge gap uh, that we need to get that out as soon as possible so people can stay in their homes and get through this crisis together. So what are the mechanics of getting that money out more quickly now, and how are you going to protect yourselves from lawsuits from from landlords who, as, as you know, you, when you're back there because the Supreme Court said tenants can't self-certify, landlords are saying whatever you do, if you touch our property rights, we're going to come after you. So what, what can you do to get this money out and, and to make sure that it's protected from, from, from lawsuits in the midst of all this? And all those two things are intimately tied together because if, if the money is out, it's in the best interest for these landlords, homeowners to work with the tenants. It's money for you, for the landlords. Why would you not want to get it? You want to kick them out and, and let go one year's worth of rent? That doesn't make any sense. So I think messaging is key. And most tenants have good relations with their landlords. And we want to create a win-win outcome uh, for everyone. And for those landlords who are... Do, or viewing this as an opportunity to make money, um, to kick people out, to, to put the people out, to put the properties out at a higher rent rate, shame on you. And we're not going to tolerate that. We are making it very clear this, you know, we need to protect our tenants and we are responding to the Supreme Court by putting in mechanisms. So if you want to challenge the financial hardship, the self attestations of tenants, there now there is a mechanism to do so in the courts, but at the same time we're putting as many incentives and safeguards for the tenants so they can stay home 
uh, and get get through this emergency. So, Assemblymember, um, you know, I'm thinking about you and your colleagues working diligently on this. I know you're on the Committee for Housing. I see that you're on the Committee for Aging, which obviously links into much of this conversation, I'm sure. Um, what's the mood in Albany right now, now that you all look like you've lost a colleague uh, who'll become the lieutenant governor? Uh, are you all feeling excited about the work that you'll be able to do with Brian Benjamin? Uh, in his new role as lieutenant governor and sort of what's your priority uh, the next time you sort of see and sit down and meet with him? Yeah, I mean, I, I like, uh, you know, Brian and uh, I've known him for a few years now and we worked on various proposals together. I do not like the process of how Kathy Hochul picked Brian Benjamin uh, by, by um, law. This is an independent position. Uh, to be a check on the executive. So that's why, but constitutionally, the governor didn't have the right to actually appoint the lieutenant governor. And when David Patterson did that, it was actually challenging court, and he actually won, setting their precedence for the governor to do so. But I disagree with it. Um, the way that she conducted this process, pitting uh, lawmakers against each other internally, which, I, which, by the way, I wasn't part of, but you could see it. You know, instead of vetting the next governor to make sure that she's doing the right things to to really deliver full transparency and the reforms that we need to root out the abusive culture. People were auditioning, you know, to try to be her, her, her lieutenant governor, you know, to get a staff member placed in the next administration. The same old um, corrupt, uh, you know, way of trading political social currencies that got us into this mess in the first place. We're seeing it happening again in real time. And I just don't think it was a healthy process. And and now that we're here, uh, I think, I hope that Kathy Hochul can say, you know what, Brian Benjamin, you don't, you don't owe me anything. Uh, you're an independent lieutenant governor. If I do something wrong, I want you to call me out on it and give him the tools and resource to be independent and be critical as possible of her decisions. Right. Well, yeah, we'll see how that back is. That in 275 will get me on the subway. Um, so let's just say, though, Brian Benjamin is somewhat independent and comes back to Albany and asks you all uh, what he should really focus on as lieutenant governor. What would you say and, and what are your priorities? Uh, my, my priorities are very straight. Be a check on the executive. Uh, that's what we need you there for. Be uh, pushed back when she's not delivering on her promises. Uh, stand with us uh, when the policies that we want to champion are not being properly heard. Just today, I was up here uh, earlier to stand with um, advocates pushing for el early elderly parole and um, elderly release. Um, you know, these advocates have been fighting for this, especially during this pandemic, because we know that more seniors will die behind prison because of the Delta variant and the widespread of COVID. And yet Andrew Cuomo didn't do anything. Like, why is clemency only left for Christmas and, and New Year's Eve? You know, why is it that these about eight to 9,000 older adults that we know are not a danger to our society? And by the way, we have all these philanthropists Robin Hood and the Ford Foundation that are waiting with deep pockets to say, when they come out, we will put behind 
tens and tens of thousands of dollars to give them the wraparound service to, for them to readjust their society. So we have everything in place except the political courage to restore humanity in our fellow New Yorkers that are suffering as we speak. These are the type of issues that I hope uh, Brian Benjamin can say, you know what, Kathy, uh, Governor Coco, I know that you've had a, 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 a perhaps more conservative background, but the moment calls for real change and bold leadership. And I hope that you can stand with my colleagues in the Senate and Assembly to deliver on these uh, policies. Now, you were pretty aggressive in, in sort of your thoughts on Governor Cuomo uh, and what he was and was not doing on behalf of New York. Uh, do you put Kathy Hochul in that same category or are you willing to uh, just kind of give her an open slate and now that she's governor, kind of wait and see? Or do you think that standing by the governor for seven plus years sort of puts her in the Cuomo camp all automatically? I've been I've been very clear from the moment that when you um, Lieutenant, then Lieutenant Governor Kathy Oakle would take over this position, I've been, uh, I was, and I was out there, I issued an op-ed uh, asking her some tough questions about, you know, what does she know about the nursing homes? Uh, what was her communication with the Como administration? Uh, what's her real plan uh, towards full transparency? Will you commit uh, to responding to all of our FOIA requests that have been stonewalled by Andrew Como for 10 years? Like, will you get commissioners in front of us under oath to testify in real hearings? Um, can you commit to those very basic things? Um, so I'm not, and I, I just, I don't subscribe to um, the traditional Democratic Party's call for unity every time we have a crisis. Because by, institutionally, we have a tendency to cover up for each other, no matter what. And, and we are leaning toward that as we speak. You know, at a time when we you should be vetting people, especially when they get closer to power, because that's where Kathy Hoku is. She has inherited the most powerful position in the state of New York. And when people get closer to power, it is incumbent upon us to ask tough questions, to hold them accountable, to deliver for our people and not be out there raising money on day one with special interest groups, the same corporate donors that have funded Andrew Cuomo. And she was out there raising money from, I think, Representative, um, the Congress member uh, King uh, a couple of weeks ago. I mean, I, I think it's, it's moments like that. It makes me wonder, like, is she serious about reform or is she just focused on following the traditional model to get her to re-election? Um, and I think if, if she is concerned about getting reelected, like following the Como traditional formula to get there will not get her reelected. Uh, it is people want accountability. People want change. People want transparency. And if she focuses on that, I believe she has a good shot of getting reelected. So Kathy Oakle comes in. She's got about five months until the Democratic Party meets. She's got less than a year until the Democratic primary. She's working in a state where the sums of money you can raise are astronomical. Andrew Cuomo, who we'll come back to, is leaving with $18 million in campaign dough. That's a lot of dough. So my question to you, separating just a moment from, from Kathy Hochul in particular, is what your priorities are for the coming not extraordinary, ordinary legislative session to try and deal with any of that 
and more generally in this year when everyone's up for re-election and there, there's a fair amount of leverage. It also seems to me, incidentally, that, that Eric Adams has a very strong hand the way maybe de Blasio did and misplayed in his first year with a governor who's trying to get her footing um, and running for office herself with lawmakers up themselves and that, that maybe there's some advantages for New York City in this setup. Yeah. Um, well, today we're focused on the housing crisis um, and we're adding a couple of other things like amending the open uh, meetings law. Uh, we shouldn't be handled by, unilaterally by the governor and the governor has agreed that we can change that law to allow localities like community boards, city councils to work remotely without calling for a state of emergency. So that's an important thing uh, because people do not want uh, people want the option to work remotely, right? Especially now. Uh, but if we have the ability to call the sessions on our own as an assembly and going into uh, the session in a couple of months, I certainly would like to get this um, challenge around impeachment squared away as soon as possible. We still have not properly come to come together as a democratic conference to discuss whether impeachment is possible or not. That decision was unilaterally made by the leadership um, and many of us pushed back internally with our own legal analysis that we can pursue impeachment because physical removal is not the, is not the removal of, 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 of an executive's criminal wrongdoing. And we have a duty to pursue the entire removal of his criminal past, um, as well as uh, forbidding uh, the executive from running and seeking public office if we see him unfit to be a public servant. That is two of our mandates of an of an of impeachment um those i think it is important for us uh, as a body to come together and have an internal debate of whether we can properly pursue impeachment and and this isn't because i want to punish uh, andrew como it's this is about full accountability to get a full account of what went wrong and what were the decisions that he made that led to really bad outcomes so we don't repeat them. Um, right now, he left without any admittance to to wrongdoing. Um, uh, he left shaming, publicly shaming the survivors and it didn't even mention nursing homes. And institutionally, we kind of gave him a soft landing where he, he gets to walk away with $5.1 million uh, from the book deal, an $18 million war chest, and, and he took he took the same staff members, those core circle people who continue to work for him, and they're preparing. I, I, they're preparing right now to go on a sympathy tour uh, and as they attack uh, survivors um, uh, from this process. And and that is not where we, sh where we should be landing. We should be really holding him accountable for his wrongdoings and then connect the dots for the public. Like who did he make those decisions for? What is the, where is the broken system here in the nursing home and home care industry that we need to go back and fix? And that is, that is our job. But oftentimes, again, we side on inaction. We side on, we hide behind words like industry stability, uh, market, uh, fundamental protecting market foundations. I mean, these are the words that we put out there during a pandemic um, when, when we try to defend landlords over tenants, when we, try to, when we try to defend nursing home executives over patients. And this is the moment to call that out, 
and to and to look at each other and say we were wrong to think that way. Andrew Cuomo made the wrong decision, and it's up to us to go back, correct it, so we never have to be in a position where we're picking people's profits over people's lives. So, so what I'm trying to understand is Cuomo says he was railroaded now, or his surrogates are saying that on his behalf. He's pretty much saying it. And uh, that he did no wrong. There must be something happening with all these women. He has huge campaign war chest. One of his surrogates says he won't run again, but that's not exactly legally binding. But you're saying that the Democrats in the legislature should get together to discuss whether or not to proceed and that leadership shouldn't be making that, that position. I'm trying to understand why the, uh, the will of the caucus is the most sensible way to proceed here. I'm certain that if Republicans were also involved, so all the lawmakers, that there would be much more appetite for impeachment. I'm sympathetic in some ways to Cuomo's argument that he should run and the people should decide, and I hope he would get whooped then, but I'm not certain that would be the case. And the way you're framing this, and we haven't even talked about the ongoing federal investigations and Jacob for what that's worth, uh, which I think people got confused about because there was a civil rights investigation of the nursing homes that got dropped. And so there were headlines about that. But there's a separate Eastern District investigation about whether they gave phony numbers to the Trump administration. I, I strongly suspect they did, um, in part because that's still ongoing. There wouldn't be much to investigate if they had not. So there are all these other shoes to drop. Why should this be up to the Democratic Party or the representatives of the Democratic Party or a slim majority of the representatives of the Democratic Party to decide whether or not to proceed? Or is, is that just simply how the, the game is built right now? And thus the mechanism you have to have some accountability. Yeah, I mean, that's the way that the system is set up where we have the supermajority and the votes to set the agenda of what we can proceed in putting forward on the House floor. Um, so not it, nothing gets introduced or passed without the Assembly Democratic Caucus deciding that this is what we're going to do because we have the votes. Um, and it's a supermajority vote. And we have a Democratic State Senate. So, so you know, they have to be on board as well. But, in, in, but as it pertains to impeachment, everything starts with the Assembly um, and, and the Speaker's decision on how he wants to proceed. Now, um, to be frank, um, I've spoken to the Speaker on and off uh, about this before, but not in recent, not in recent days. Um, if I, if I have, I'm, I am very sympathetic to the extreme stress that he also must be under being a, as he pointed out, a democratic speaker, um, take trying to possibly impeach a democratic governor of the same party. That's, that has never been done before and he would be the first. And the historical consequence, as he pointed out, uh, could, it must be very stressful. And he doesn't and a want former to make the wrong decision. Who's going to say, you can't even impeach me. I'm not even the governor. And, and, and try to challenge on that basis as well. Like, Correct. And, and there, it would be drawn out um, in the public and uh, millions and millions of dollars the taxpayers could have been spent um, on that case. So all those things, I, I understand. But my, my only uh, concern is that all of that, should have been 
through a deliberative process um, where we can make arguments on both sides and and understand. And because some of us believe the the intent of impeachment is to get to accountability um, because resignation as it stands does not equate to accountability. Um, And if we have already spent millions and millions of dollars to investigate Andrew Cuomo through the Judiciary Committee that has an open uh, investigation, uh, and we find something uh, that is, uh, uh, you know, uh, criminal or uh, unethical uh, uh, misconduct, then we have a constitutional duty to act. Um, so there's some tough questions. So what happens when this investigative report that the speaker hastily committed to making public proves that there is uh, criminal misconduct? Um, then and, and do we then have a, a constitutional duty to continue to, with the impeachment process, or are we going to hide behind uh, some legality that he's already left office? Uh, he, he, you know, so we can't impeach him, which I don't agree with. So I got to ask this question because I feel like it's hanging in the in the ether and it just needs to come out. Are you running for something? Beyond um, um, member, because I just feel like you're laying out these cogent arguments that extend by beyond Queens and beyond Albany. So I'm just going to go ahead and ask, are you running for for governor? Well, this this fight has always been about justice for nursing home victims. Um, you know, and I've the moment that I've uh, was given the role of the chair of committee on aging, um, I've took that role seriously. And I've been out there statewide um, talking to nursing home residents, uh, nursing home families um, to get to the truth and deliver accountability. And and this particular fight, as you know, goes back last year, um, you know, when I was having my own reelection and people were telling me not to say anything bad about Andrew Cuomo. But I was willing to lose my reelection last year because you know, I made promises to to my family, to my constituents who lost their loved ones and who knew that his policies were flawed, but they felt like their voice wasn't being heard. Um, so that's that's my focus, and we're trying to get back to session um, to all to deliver that that justice that I I have made I have committed to, and we have a number of proposals uh, such as a. Um, a, a compensation, victim compensation fund for the, the families and the victims, um, as well as going back and allowing retroactive um, cases to come out if there were criminal cases in these in nursing homes, because the statute of limitation may expire next year on some of these cases. So we need to go back and fix that. So there's a lot of things that I'm focused on uh, that does impact statewide. Um, but as far as uh, your question goes, I'm open I'm open to different options. I think next year uh, there's a lot of people running for different seats. And um, if there's an opportunity, I certainly would like to uh, look at it as well. Okay. I appreciate that. So, so one of the things that's so exciting about getting a new governor is you get a new lieutenant governor. You get a whole game of musical chairs, right? There's only so many of these uh, appealing elected positions for people to fill. And when they open up, sort of shifts things. What I'm curious about, looking ahead, and I think we're going to have a very interesting Democratic primary next year uh, in the governor's race, I don't think we're going to have a competitive general. 
I've been wrong before. We had three terms of George Pataki. We'll see. But it does seem to me that, that we've reached this supermajority point, that this is an overwhelmingly democratic state. The Cuomo, who in his farewell address, you know, warned that the uh, socialists were coming for your, uh, your police and your property and so forth, said, I was the only break left. Was he on to something there? Is there a chance for this, these newly rising progressives, given the party's strong control of the uh, state, to really push New York forward in ways we haven't seen or thought about or considered possible up to this point next year or potentially the year after that, after the party goes through this uh, this election exercise and decides it's standard bearer for its highest office and so forth. Yeah, I, so full transparency, I'm a dues-paying DSA member. Uh, I've been paying my dues for DSA for a few years now, uh, but sometimes I don't. I don't feel. I feel like DSA doesn't even go. F- far enough to protecting uh, workers uh, in our state. Our system is so royally um, backwards and broken that no matter what we do, uh, including progressives and progressive uh, you know, nonprofits that make it seem like they're out there protecting workers, they're not. You know, we're, we're just, people are profiting off of poverty left and right everywhere in this state. Um, and the people that are struggling the most they are seeing it uh, every day, the disconnect. Uh, you can label it as socialist, Democrats, Republicans, doesn't matter. But people are feeling jaded and upset. And, and we're having elections and elections like in Buffalo, where India Walton won, is, is a, I think it's a predictor of what's com- what is going to come um, if we don't get this right, especially if Democrats lean on uh, traditional democratic establishment politics, where they usher in corporate interests, they rake in, as you mentioned earlier, all that money New York has to offer to protect the interests and, and give the people a little bit of crumb in here and there to manage the inequality, especially the massive wealth inequality that we suffer from. So, yes, um, you can reduce it and vilify the socialist and call it whatever and do the fear mongering. But the next wave, the next phase of political battle is between the moderate establishment Democrats and, and the progressive left socialist, um, and, and how that's, and, and, and the agenda that we're setting for a better New York versus people who wants to maintain the status quo. That's a, that, that's a, Terrific note, I think, to uh, to end on. Uh, I know you've got a busy day up there. We really appreciate you coming back on and taking the time. And we'll all be watching with interest to see what happens today, what happens legislatively and electorally next year. And uh, we hope you'll come back on uh, soon to discuss. And thank you. Great. Thank Thanks you, Christina. So thank you, Harry. Thank Bye. you. Now we're going to talk to David Brand of City Limits. Hey, welcome back to David Brand, who's a senior reporter and editor covering housing and homelessness for City Limits. Uh, Hi, David. As we're talking, uh, the legislature is back for a one-day special session in this weird interim where pretty much all the eviction uh, pauses are now unpaused, and they're trying to, to repause them. Can you just give us a fill-in on where things stand? 
at the moment and where they're likely to be at the end of the day by the time people are listening to this on Thursday? Sure. So the Senate and Assembly are back in Albany for what they're calling an extraordinary session to uh, vote on additional eviction protections that would prevent most evictions in New York State from going through. Uh, this is the latest legislation that would protect most renters from losing their homes. Uh, and this, the reason they're doing this is because the Supreme Court of the U.S. Uh, overturned the existing uh, eviction protections that uh, were here in New York State, which were based on a hardship declaration form where renters who uh, were potentially facing eviction could fill out this form, say they've been financially impacted by the pandemic, uh, and that would automatically halt the proceedings uh, that was set to expire on the 31st yesterday anyway. So uh, they may have you know, revisited this issue anyway, but there was a special, uh, special priority because Supreme Court had really taken away a, a core protection there. And so to respond to the Supreme Court, it looks like what they're going to do is say landlords can then challenge that hardship declaration form. And it looks likely that's going to pass in this session. Am I mistaken in thinking that that uh, the the challenge to the declaration was also enjoined with a bunch of other tenant protections for eviction? So it all got knocked down in the most layman's terms possible. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 very it's I think it's complicated and I, I don't really quite know best way to answer that question, except to say that the 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 declaration form was like a way to get an automatic stay on proceedings. And so that was really strong protection. And then without that. Uh, it could be, you know, business as usual, I guess, which we haven't quite seen in housing courts. But uh, yeah, they're going to reestablish the the hardship form, but give landlords an opportunity to challenge it. And that also adds another layer of protection because then that's another hearing that the tenants and landlords have to go to in court. Uh, and then the landlord has to, I guess, make the tenant prove that they've experienced hardship, but you know, as tenant advocates say, first of all, that's like a major hassle for landlords, especially uh, if they want to get their rental assistance money, they're not going to do this. If they want to get paid. You're not going to try to evict because once you evict, you're not going to get that rental assistance money. And it could be, uh, I wouldn't say easy, but so many people have experienced some type of hardship because of the pandemic. There's going to be a lot of opportunities to, to demonstrate that. So, David, can you tell me a little bit more about the form that folks fill out? You know, is it just in English? Is it in multiple languages? How complicated is this form that renters? That's a good question about the languages. I, I'm not quite sure um, about what languages it's in, but it's a pretty straightforward form in English, at least, that says, you know, I have experienced a hardship. It's basically a sworn affidavit. So what uh, attorneys were warning tenants who were submitting it is say, you know, if you're submitting this, just know that this could eventually be challenged. And so people who are submitting it are basically swearing in court that they experience a hardship. And so a lot of uh, tenants' rights advocates and attorneys said, like, this should be enough to demonstrate that people experience hardship because they're swearing it in court. And so uh, Supreme Court didn't agree with that. And so they're adding this uh, adding this other portion to allow landlords to challenge that form. So, I mean, all you have to do is, 
you don't have to prove anything necessarily. You're because it's an affidavit form, you just say, I'm experiencing hardship. Do you have to attach any kind of financials to it? I'm just kind that, of I'm trying yeah. to figure out just how difficult or easy it would be for someone who, you know, may not speak English as a first language or, you know, feel comfortable filling out these types of forms. Yeah, down the line you would. Uh, mm-hmm. But for the duration of that, of those protections that were overturned by the Supreme Court and would have expired on the 31st, uh, you wouldn't have to. And then once that expired, uh, then that's when the, when the case could proceed and you would have to provide those. But that's why here the, the, the city's right to counsel law is going to be so important because there's going to be a lot more, uh, a, a lot, a lot of challenges where now people are going to have to prove their hardship. And so, an attorney is going to have to really, it's going to be really helpful there. Let's bring in one other element here, which is the emergency rental assistance program mm-hmm. that the uh, Fed, the Fed's funded. There's $2.7 billion for New York. Very little of that was spent under Cuomo. I know there's talk about getting some of that money out right away in this bill. The Daily News says a legislative source said $300 million of that $2.7 billion. Why has that money been so slow to get dispersed here? And what are uh, the governor and lawmakers doing to change that now? And I think that's that's like the ultimate question. What is taking so long? Because this was established by the state legislature and, and the governor as part of the budget in early April. Uh, they had, you know, close to two months to set it up. There was delays there with the with the contractor that they hired to set up the portal uh, the portal opened June 1st for applications. Right away, there was a ton of problems. Uh, people, on a most basic level, you started a, a, a lengthy application. You couldn't save it and resume it another time. You needed the internet to do it. And a lot of the people who are going to benefit from this program are low-income tenants, older adults, people without access to reliable internet. Uh, so right there, there's some real like foundational problems. Uh, I got the contract from... Uh, the state office of temporary and disability assistance, you know, you could tell by the contract, there were some missed benchmarks, uh, including with staffing levels with the contractor, the state allocated more state employees to, uh, to work on these. So there's like 1500 people working on these applications. They set a pretty ambitious timeline. So I think it's really unclear, like what, what is taking so long? Money is starting to come out. They've committed uh, about $600 million to landlords on behalf of tenants who weren't able to make rent during the pandemic. And so that money is going to start flowing soon. Uh, but, you know, that's a question that I think a lot of people have, including lawmakers who have held sessions to really grill the head of uh, OTDA on the, on the uh, delays there. So all this money that we're talking about, this whole $2.7 billion gets distributed. This is money that's going to landlords. Right. Right. And landlords and tenants actually have to work together under the present process with like the paperwork and the application to make this happen. So Howard Husak, who is at the uh, American Enterprise Institute now, had had a piece in the post I thought was interesting. Uh, The headline was, instead of a dumb ban, NY should pay landlords not to evict tenants. And he basically, you know, is asking, why are we putting tenants through this complicated self pseudo self-certification process now that's getting corrected because of the Supreme Court. Um, and why not just have landlords certify that they need the money? Uh, and he's arguing 
look, you know, there'll be some fraud there, but there's some fraud in any of these programs. And that would just be much more simple and much more direct. And it might not be as politically appealing, but would do more to actually keep people to keep eviction proceedings from getting started. And we haven't even touched on COVID in the court yet, yeah. uh, which have also slowed things down. Um, and I, I'm just curious about y- your thoughts on that. It was the sort of very, I, I thought it was an interesting idea I had not considered at all and was trying to think through the different ways landlords could then game such a system. <laughs> yeah, so that many. is interesting. <laughs> so many. I think when we say some corruption and talking about New York City landlords, uh, some is like... <laughs> Pretty intense understatement. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so I mean, it's, it's funny because he's saying he wants what the tenants had and the, the Supreme Court just overruled. Like, there's a better way. Trust yeah. the landlords. Get rid of the red tape and substitute a simple legally binding declaration from property owners about the amount of rental income that they haven't received. Which, <laughs> I, I yeah, think well, you can see how that could uh, get gained. What I hear from landlords a lot, too, is like, it is kind of along those lines. What if we had a tenant who wasn't paying, wasn't paying, wasn't paying and left? We can't get them to sign the documents to get this money. And I think that is a, a significant problem. There's no doubt about it. But what the state says there is that these are federal rules that they're, that they're complying with, with the emergency rental assistance program. Um, so that they, they kind of defer to the federal government there and say the federal government makes it's that you have to get the tenant, uh, the tenant, compliance on it. It's a good point. I mean, the basically the part, the whole premise of emergency rental assistance program is to pay landlords not to evict, to make landlords whole, to get them the money that they went without for much of the pandemic, whether that's a tenant who didn't pay at all, or in a lot of cases, tenants and landlords who kind of work together with the landlord saying, listen, I know money's tight. Could you pay something? Uh, so if someone had a $2,300 rent, they were able to pay $1,000 a month, then the landlord can make up that, uh, that difference and, and maybe should be commended for that type of, uh, cooperation between the renter and the landlord. Um, but what are the promises, uh, that they have to make again? They have they can, to, they can't they can. evict for, yeah, they can't evict for, for at least another year. And so there's also, if someone just submits an application, a renter, the landlord can't evict for a certain amount of time. Um, and, you know, even if they're not complying with uh, filling out the, their portion of the application, the state's saying they're making as many efforts as they can to contact the landlords and say, like, look, we have your money, we've earmarked this, we're going to hold it for six months to give it to you. So, you know, there's really, I think, there's little incentive to pursue an eviction if you want to get the money that you're owed. And what I see sometimes in these relationships between landlords and tenants is that it becomes more about like emotion and less about mm. logic. Like if someone, if someone is really pissed off at their tenant and they think the tenant, like what I hear sometimes is, Oh, like this tenant has been working. I see them getting Amazon packages to my house. Like I want them out emotionally. Maybe you are pissed off that resentment grows. Maybe there were issues even before the pandemic, but if you want to get paid, if you're missing like 40 grand, it's probably not the most logical thing to pursue an eviction at this time. David, we keep saying like the word landlord. Can you sort of flesh through like not all landlords are the same because they're they're sort of the the kind of mom and pop. They rent mm-hmm. out, you know, the second yeah. floor versus yeah. like these conglomerates. So <laughs> can you walk us through kind of some of the nuance of, of that discussion? Yeah, that's a great point. And I, I think when I 
what I have been talking about mostly right now is those small property owners who really do depend on that uh, rental income to uh, make their mortgage easier or make their property tax burden less uh, and who have come to depend on that income, especially in a two family or a three family home where they may be on the on the ground floor. Uh, but then, of course, there are these major conglomerates that own uh, thousands of apartments and uh, maybe each apartment is a different LLC that all is linked to the same address. And what I've seen in in kind of my looks through uh, housing court records is that those LLCs have been uh, who uh, that own a lot of properties are seem to be the ones that have brought the most eviction cases um, over the past year or so. And the way that this ERAP program works with the money that's been spent so far, it's like a hundred and something million out of the two point seven billion. But but most of it is actually going to to bills that already haven't been paid, right? As I understand it, it covers up to 12 months of unpaid rent, and then it can be up to three months of like future rent and utility payments. Yeah. So does that in any way divide the interests of landlords and tenants or, or split out big landlords from small property owners in terms of how interested they are in accessing the program? That's a good question. I mean, there's definitely, I think, more incentive if you're a small property owner and you're missing a year plus of rent and you can make up a year of that. And this is a, this is a, a major part of your income, uh, compared to a, a larger, a large property owner, what we had just called a conglomerate, uh, where maybe like one tenant's year of rent is really not big deal to your bottom line. You just want to get them out, I guess. Uh, so I think there's definitely more incentive for, for a small property owner to get that money. One thing I have been hearing from some property owners and even some tenants, uh, speaking in, on behalf of their landlord and their situation is that sometimes they'll, that year, that 12 months of, of back rent will come through, but then like one month of the three future months will come through or none, no, none of the money for, uh, future rent will come through. And there's really no explanation why. Huh. And so then they try to appeal that decision. I think that becomes a, a even more complicated process. Last question from me. With this special session happening, this is necessarily a little speculative, but I know that some of the landlord groups were talking about potential lawsuits. If they feel like the uh, the legislature does anything here, the government does anything here that infringes on their property rights. Yeah. Uh, do, do, do you see that happening from big landlords, from individual ones, from tenants? Uh, once this new protection is in, or or is, does that seem to be blustered? I think they're definitely going to sue. I mean, they've made. I think a lot of the landlord groups have made it clear, especially the Rent Stabilization Association, that they're going to sue to try to block this and uh, take it back to the Supreme Court. And I guess you know the, the legal experts working on this legislation, the tenants' rights advocates, and you know they're consulting with landlord groups as well. I guess uh, they say that this should fulfill the requirements set by the Supreme Court in their mid-August ruling that to basically to just give landlords a chance to challenge these financial hardship declaration forms. But once it gets into higher courts and once it gets to the Supreme Court, I guess we shall see. You never know what's what to expect with this uh, current Supreme Court. What do landlords expect to get out of that? Uh, I guess that they they just don't want all of these layers of protections for their tenants and they want to have the opportunity to evict 
and to rent out their units to new tenants. The issue that I hear though is like, if so many people are experiencing financial hardship, is it going to be very easy to fill those units? And that's another layer of protection too, where it's like, there's that cost benefit analysis by a property owner. You want to evict your tenant. Are you sure you're going to be able to get a new tenant in there? Uh, but one thing I just would say that it is kind of amazing when you think about how many uh, evictions used to take place in New York City not that long ago, like 17,000 in 2019. And that was less by far than previous years. You get a lot of reporting about Bronx Housing Court with uh, people holding hearings, judges holding hearings in the elevator bay. And then there were about like 3,000 in the first few months of 2020 before the pandemic hit. And since then, there's been like 50. And those are like rare circumstances. So it is pretty amazing to reflect on that. Like there's been this patchwork of eviction protections that we call a moratorium, not totally blanket moratorium, but they haven't, they have allowed like tens of thousands of people to remain in their homes. <laughs> Gonna have to check with the New York Post on that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I mean, I, I think it's really interesting though, you said in passing, but how so much of this is the emotional aspect. I mean, where one lives is, is, is kind of like the core foundation, you know, however psychologically you want to say this. So part of the beef sometimes is about money, but oftentimes it feels like it's about something else. Yeah. I was talking about that with somebody and they said uh, like an old aphorism, I guess is like the closest relationship you have is with your, your spouse, the second closest and maybe, rockiest is with uh with your landlord has there been any forward motion for relief for small landlords with uh loans or uh taxes or anything like that since 2020 like how is 2021 shaping up for um like property tax relief and things like that that's a good question i mean i think that that is something that deserves more attention uh, especially for small property owners who are facing hardship and uh, at risk of, of foreclosure, um, even if they're not, even if they're not landlords, if they're single family homeowners uh, who are, who are at risk of losing their homes. But that's another thing that this legislation would prevent is, uh, or at least in most cases, is foreclosure. But I think that's 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 grounds for even more reporting and, uh, and examination for sure. Cause a lot of the tension is, has been on the tenants and the, the relationship between tenants and property owners, but you need to focus more also on property owners who are at risk of losing their homes. So if the immediate issue is how the economic pain of this, uh, pandemic gets distributed and the longer term issue for landlords is maintaining their, their, their rights, and their property rights going forward, which uh, se seems like that might be the basis of the lawsuits rather than uh, money now, since whatever money comes through these programs actually ends up with them. What, uh, what, what do you recommend uh, for our closer here to listeners that they pay attention to going forward uh, um, in these fights and as they develop and as hopefully the, the economy solidifies at the other end of the pandemic, but that also remains to be seen. Hmm. I think paying attention to how many property owners are getting money 
through this program. Um, if this sets a precedent for other states to follow, um, how the Supreme Court will respond to this because, you know, it's a conservative court, tend to side with property owners. Does this fulfill their requirements from their previous ruling? And if not, why not? Like, is there, what is the legal foundation for that? Um, and then I think just, just remembering like a lot of people experience hardship and there also tends to be a really adversarial uh, conversation, especially on social media, especially on Twitter between landlord advocates, tenant advocates. Uh, and there are a lot of people who are working together on this. And there are a lot of property owners working with tenants to get some rent. A lot of people who have strong relationships and, uh, you know, hopefully they can get made whole and just move on with life and, and get the money that they, that they need tenants stay in their homes. And that's the most important thing. Um, and then I guess we will continue to revisit this as there's legal challenge. And then if, if this new legislation can stand on January 15th, when, uh, these protections expire. Oh, stay tuned. Thank you again, David. Um, please come back to, uh, continue this conversation. And as we, uh, we hit all these thresholds. For sure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, David. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. Find us online at thebrick.house. We're headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan. Special thank yous to our guests, Ruvane Blau of The City and Assemblymember Ron Kim, and also David Brand of City Limits. And as ever, to Adam Kamara, who mixed and edited this week's episode. Thank you for listening. Be safe, be well, be cool, be kind, and we'll be back soon.